So we're hoping to engage with the, uh, the full diversity of this text and cover the implications, how they apply in real life, how they can help our organizing, all, all of these facets of the text that even if you had covered this, uh, say, at a university, you might not have like grappled with thoroughly and you, you might find kind of transform your approach to political educations or reading groups and may even just serve as an intervention in, in your own organizing practices. I was sleeping on the job just a moment ago here and just uh, barely hit record um, into our last little exchange um, in terms of recording this for the podcast that's going to come after the live stream. So I apologize. We're going to rewind just a little bit. Uh, and I'm going to say again that we have Adam here from the Wyoming Red Star Coalition. And Adam came on to our live stream today uh, to talk about a reading group uh, that they have started uh, or that they're going to start around Paulo Freire's Pedagogy of the Oppressed. Uh, those of you who are, are watching the live stream are looking at this uh, first edition, which was published in the original um, Portuguese uh, language that, that it was um, published in. And uh, uh, we'll kind of fill in the gaps, but why don't you talk a little bit about how uh, you conceive of the reading group maybe working uh, at the outset. I can actually just read you the the kind of preface that we're going to be working from and how we're going to be introducing the reading group uh, when it actually comes time to to start next week. Uh, in, in kind of Hegelian fashion, um, we're starting with a loose purpose and then hopefully we're going to iterate on that um, to improve the, the reading group as it goes along. Um, but this is this is how we're going to be introducing that group. Sounds good. What we're calling Mutual Education is a project committed to co-creating an accessible and engaging communal dialogue in an iterative process of group study, while bettering the radical learning and outreach process and reflecting on the educational form itself. In an effort to democratize this process and drive continued engagement, we're asking everyone to facilitate discussion and content selection in, in flexible rotation. Our aim is to present and engage with the central questions and tensions of the source materials, drawing from supplementary material where possible to make the ideas approachable to all who wish to participate, irrespective of ability or time to necessarily absorb all of the weekly material. And as you mentioned, the first uh, source material that we're going to be covering is Pedagogy of the Oppressed, which, you know, it's kind of it kind of prefaces this mutual education group in and of itself because it's going to be talking about the very uh, the very same considerations of educational form um, in Freire's conception of the dialogical process uh, and some of the other interventions he had um, to education writ large into the concept of praxis, that being the marriage of theory and praxis and this reflective process uh, that happens um, in, in that kind of education. And I think that's it. And what, or we, you know, real quickly, or actually take all the time you want, why this book now? Uh, what is it that, uh, that makes uh, you all feel like this is the, the starting point that you want? That's a good question. Um, well, I think it's pretty topical this year. Um, I mean, if you consider this most frequent or this most recent cycle of protests uh, as continuous with the time that we're talking about, um, because it, it, it came out of that uh, decolonial uh, strain of Marxism and does so in a way that's very much focused on the practical steps that you can take, irrespective of position, to not only educate yourself, but to come to a heightened subjectivity and to realize your your potential as like a liberated human subject. Um, so I think the fact that it draws from some of France Fanon's work in Wretched of the Earth and all the decolonial thinking that he's done while also offering practical uh, interventions in how we do 
outreach, how we do organizing, how we do education, all make it a very timely primary source. And, and certainly that combination of things makes it a very good starting source for this kind of, uh, you know, radical or revolutionary um, study group. Why don't you talk a little bit about what people can do if they want to get involved uh, in the group and who they can contact and, and what they, they might expect getting involved? Yeah, so I would ask anyone interested in joining this uh, mutual education project to go look up Wyoming Red Star Coalition on Facebook um, and then go ahead and like our page and send us a DM and we'll get you the information uh, and get you involved. Um, it's open to all. We don't, we're not asking any sort of requirements. We're just, we're hoping that everybody that's interested would be willing to um, at some point help facilitate one of the discussions. And that might, nece might not necessarily come up over the course of, uh, you know, this like 150 page book or whatever, but part of the, the mutual education process as we see it is helping to democratize the form. So uh, to actively engage everybody in not just reading the source material, but also presenting it at times. All right. So uh, people can look up the Wyoming Red Star Coalition on Facebook. We will also link that uh, onto this, uh, to the comments section of this video as well uh, as on our other pages. Uh, it's Wyoming Red Star Coalition on Facebook. Um, and it also sounds like it's an open question about necessarily about where you might go after uh, reading this book. Um, are, are there any other things in my, any books in mind uh, that you think will uh, will be uh, second or third in line, or uh, are you going to um, really deliberate about that? You know, I always have books that I'm interested in in covering, but uh, this is very much going to be as uh, democratic as possible. So we're going to have hopefully some lively discussion coming out of this uh, as far as trajectories that we can take into different source material. All right. So we've been talking to Adam from Wyoming Red Star Coalition. Uh, the Wyoming Red Star Coalition is linked in the comments section uh, here, or actually it will be in a moment. Um, and uh, they are starting a, uh, a reading group, uh, and they're beginning with Paulo Freer's Pedagogy of the Oppressed. Uh, and so you can get more information on their Facebook page about it, uh, as well as learn a little bit about the Wyoming Red Star Coalition in the process. Uh, so much solidarity, Adam, and thank you so much for, uh, for starting this and to offer, offering this uh, for people. I know that it can be uh, and hope that it is a real transformative experience for people. Absolutely. Thank you so much for having me, Matt. Our pleasure. We'll see you later, Adam. Solidarity. I remember when Rosa used to have uh, uh, dignity and restraint uh, <laughs> when she was a younger dog. And now she bursts into the room, breaks down the door, bursts into the room and says, <laughs> where's the food? Uh, oh, are you eating something? Um, I either want you to hand it right to me or I want to lick the plate, all the plates. So anyway. Kind of what Kyra does with my room too. Oh my God. Kyra just owns, just thinks she owns whatever domain <laughs> she is in front of her at the time. So she does the same thing in Noah's room. Uh, she does the same thing with humans and dogs and other cats too. She just kind of owns the whole thing. So yeah, That's true. She does eat Rose's food pretty regularly, um, which I think is funny and drinks all of her water. Mm -hmm. uh, animal communism is not something that we have fully achieved. <laughs> so there's still yeah. some, and frankly, some petty, petty bourgeois animal resistance going on. Oh, yeah, totally. And, and Kyra is the worst. She is definitely not a communist. You know, she's like, I am the queen. Yeah, no, she's a she's a mo royalist. She's totally a royalist. <laughs> she's a monarchist. Yeah, she's she she would be the first up against the wall. Yeah. Um. All right. So we uh, so this week uh, here at Solidarity Collective, we are putting on an auction, and it is a winter survival auction. And anyone who's followed us 
uh, long enough knows that every winter we run out of money and that's when we uh, um, rely on the uh, the gracious uh, and generous support of folks who are amused at this experiment that we continue to conduct here. We're selling a bunch of stuff. Uh, because we were left with a ginormous mound of trash and strangeness, some of which is fairly delightful uh, when we moved in here. Plus, we've had a number of people come through over the last two and a half years that we've been on the property. And then when they leave, they often leave stuff here. So there's like this constant low-level accumulation of new strange and wonderfulness and um, as well as still working off of that vestigial pile. <laughs> right. Well, and everyone who's here has brought stuff with them. And yeah, and some of the things that we've found have been uh, just uh, uh, really amazing. And we've got some really cool stuff that we're selling this week. Um, and we're going to have an event page up on Facebook. We're going to have that by tonight. So we're recording this on Monday, February 15th. Uh, and by the end of the week, that's when the auction is going to start. But we're going to have fun events around the uh, uh, around the event, uh, sub events, satellite events uh, going on uh, during, during the, the process. So we've got some things like um, a turtle lamp that we're selling. We've got uh, this amazing looking toolbox that when I first saw it, I thought it was Thor's hammer. Um, and uh, so I thought, so that was interesting or like a, it was sort of like a cyberpunk version uh, of Thor's hammer. Um, so, or a steampunk version of Thor's hammer. Um, and we've got these amazing uh, uh, figurines that we're selling and, and also a bunch of Star Wars shit that we're selling and oh and i'm yeah and we've got original art from uh jason one of our members uh is selling some of his sculpture uh which is really cool uh we've always really liked uh jason's stuff haven't we mm -hmm. yeah for sure we have bits and pieces of jason art all over the property at this point most of which we're keeping because we love it and a few of which we're um we're going to be auctioning off this week. I'm looking at some of it right now that we're auctioning off and it's these mobiles with uh, uh, like a tea kettle uh, uh, figurine and uh, a bunch of other like mini metal figurines and uh, things kind of dangling around. It's really quite beautiful. And uh, Jason has done a lot of really amazing stuff here. If you Is the art that we're selling of his made from materials that have been found around here or was that? earlier projects of his? I don't know. That's a good question. I know that he's been doing this for some time and he brought a lot of that with him. Um, but I know, and I also know that he's done some stuff from here. He was using a lot of that, a lot of our uh, junk um, even, yeah. before, even before he moved in. So that's pretty cool. Oh, and also we're selling off some books. Yeah. Um, how amazing is it that on this property, we had not one, not two, but three complete works of Shakespeare's all bounded together in one book. So yeah, the singular volume, that giant singular volume Shakespeare that, I mean, I, I grew up with one, uh, not one of them that's here, but yeah, I think that's really, I thought that was uh, really cool too. Yeah, the the big one is amazing. Um, from what I saw, it was it's from a British publishing company uh, so it was printed in India. It has the gold foiling. Is that what it's called? The gold gilding around the pages and the ribbon bookmark. And it's also an illustrated copy. So that's what makes it so huge compared to the wow. other one, which is a lot smaller and not illustrated. But Wow, that's so cool. Yeah. Speaking of illustrated uh, stuff, uh, we also have... Uh, an edition of uh, the Sherlock Holmes, original Sherlock Holmes short stories uh, by Arthur Conan Doyle that were published in this magazine in Britain called The Strand. And it also has all of the original artwork in it. And that artist, that particular artist, who I'm sure I will have to learn their name and talk about them during the week, um, every time you think, well, what does Sherlock Holmes look like? And the, the, the iconic Sherlock Holmes, it's that artist that's responsible for that. So th th this is a really sweet book. I've read through that in the, in the past as well. This one is just like new. Nice. 
And we've got other art stuff too. We have so much art this time. It's great. Um, so, so my mom actually is a, uh, an art ceramicist and we've got a few of her pieces. And so there's one uh, set of these two uh, wall pieces that are like leaves and she uses like real leaves for them. So it's like super realistic, cool. Um, so we've got a set of those wall hangings. And then she also makes little um, sushi plates that have like the rim that are like the sort of rectangular things that you would see in a restaurant, except that they're handmade ceramics with this really beautiful pattern on them. And they've got little like chopstick rest grooves on them. They're super cool. So there's a set of four of those. Um, so I got that stuff. So shout out to Kay Howard, who is the other featured artist in the fam. Um, and That's then I've so cool. Ceramic stuff, actually. So I've been so I've lived in intentional communities for a long time. And one of the communities that I lived in, we made hammocks as one of our jobs. And at one point I made a hammock, you could like do the labor and then like buy the materials at kind of a discounted rate if you lived there. And I've never put it up anywhere. So I've been like moving this hammock around for years and we're going to auction it off. And I also have a hammock swing, which is one of the things that Twin Oaks community makes that is super cool. So it's this like, basically it's a hanging chair that's like a hammock seat. So, and that was made at Twin Oaks. That was made at Twin Oaks. Yes. Wow. Yeah. So we're going to very cool those on the auction as well. Awesome. And the, and the, uh, so they're probably a little dusty. I have to like dust them off before we send them to you. But because um, they've been out in the Quonset hut now since we've been here. Uh, and the other thing I'm contributing, which we're not going to auction off, but we're going to use as a prize of some kind. We were thinking maybe like the person who makes the largest total number of bids on things over the course of the thing. Um, we're going to send you a set of my books. So um, Together Resilience and the Cooperative Culture Handbook and a copy of my poetry and short story chapbook from 1992, I think. Wow. I, no, no, 96. Uh -huh. um, yeah, you're not that old. I'm not that old, no. Um, some of the poems are from 92, but the um, the chapbook's from 96. So yeah, so that'll go to someone who's a really active participant in this whole thing. We're just going to send it to you. And we may end up packing some of these wonderful things in Yonifer Wyo t-shirt of your size. If you uh, give us your t-shirt size and, and uh, we have, um, uh, we have several of those shirts left. And so uh, I shouldn't say we, the, the Yonifer Wyo campaign has several of those shirts left. So. Yes. Which are now being donated. <laughs> yeah. You'll never be able to forget like that time. Uh, I mean, if I want, you know, if I was looking to collect political t-shirts, I would want the one from the socialist that got 5,000 votes uh, in, uh, uh, in Wyoming in 2020. <laughs> so that can be yours too, for buying something that we need to wrap in something. So. So today we're doing this promo and we're going to put that out on our podcast. It's going to come out tonight. We're also doing the gathering of the things. Uh, so today is the day that everybody's going to bring the different things that they've found from, you know, the, the dozen different nooks and crannies and uh, the Quonset hut and downstairs and all of these different places where we're finding things. Really, you should come and, and visit because it's like a museum uh, here, um, uh, a museum of the weird. Uh, on, and then tomorrow on Tuesday, we're going to prioritize and take more pictures of things. We already have a bunch of pictures of things. We'll make those slides. We'll name the prizes and figure out the prizes. We're gonna, we'll put up the Facebook page, I think, tomorrow as well. Uh, um, Wednesday, we're going to start really posting things um, seriously. Uh, and then on Friday, our morning show begins at 9 a.m. on uh, Mountain Time. And that's when uh, we will start sort of the auction process. Do I, am I understanding the auction process right here? I think so. Yeah. So we're going to put them up so you'll get a chance to bid. It'll be online. And at some point, there'll be like a last call for bids. And then we'll be announcing winners and then over the next couple of weeks sending stuff to people yeah i think the the auction's going to go through the weekend right yeah Until, yeah so we'll actually yeah. i think we'll do a, a morning show 
next Monday. So, mm-hmm. so this Monday coming up the, what is that? The 22nd. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, so we'll do a morning show on the 22nd that will be last call and us having fun showing off stuff and announcing who won them. Uh, yeah. So it's going to be fun. Wonderful. Okay. So if you like old, old stuff uh, or weird stuff uh, or unusual stuff, and if you want to um, help us out uh, in our uh, annual winter drive, winter fun drive uh, to help pay the, the uh, heating bill and keep us going uh, until it gets warm here again, uh, then this this is a great way to do that. Uh, you've helped us in so many ways in the past. You helped us build this, helped us build this fantastic greenhouse that we have. Uh, you've helped us uh, with, um, you know, just all kinds of things. And uh, this time we've got uh, stuff to give back to you. So uh, thanks everybody. Um, I'm probably going to edit the shit out of this. So cool. Great. there we go yeah 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 and so um yeah so this is so we want to talk about uh in in capitalism what defines the working class or in under you know socialist theory uh what defines the working class is having the fact that you sell your labor power uh that you that the way that you exist the way that you subsist the way that you feed yourself the way that you take care of your family is by selling your labor power, unless you're one of a tiny little class, a tiny little class of people that don't have to do that because they can manipulate their money. They can manipulate the money they have to to generate their wealth and, and sustain themselves. Um, but for the rest of us, we sell our labor power. And so selling means, you know, in this economy, especially means going out and pitching yourself and selling yourself. So there must be a lot of feelings attached to that. Yeah. So I'm in that process right now. And I, um, so I've been doing mostly freelance work for about 15 years and sometimes dipping into having, um, having a local low wage job when the finances got really tight. Um, and a few years ago did a round of this, um, trying to get a job thing and, um, and eventually gave up and, you know, got, got some interviews, um, got to meet some really great folks. But after about two months of it, I gave up. And this time I've now been back in that search process since late October and haven't given up yet. I'm still doing it. I'll be doing at least two more applications today after we are done with this. And, and I feel like I'm coming to it with a much more astute analysis about human resources and HR and particularly um, hiring practices. And so I wanted to sort of break some of that down and share some of that with us as the, you know, a little, I mean, a little bit of kind of expose energy, but without like naming any names, because I'm only applying for jobs with groups that I really like, and I'm excited about what they're doing. And so I'm not, um, I don't want to bash any of those organizations. And God, there have been some terrible practices that have come out in the hiring processes, even with groups who are doing really cool stuff. And, and so my niche that I'm working in, as problematic as it is, is professional class nonprofit stuff for the most part. And so I'm applying for um, executive director roles with small to medium-sized nonprofits. I am applying for HR stuff because HR is actually fascinating and is kind of where the rubber hits the road around justice and workers' rights and a whole bunch of other stuff. And so I've actually gotten more and more intrigued with that segment of work. So that's the niche that I'm talking about. And I think a lot of this is probably applicable to um, other work niches as well, but that's the space that I'm coming out of right now. And so I wanted to go through a whole bunch of like really bad practices and um, talk about why they're bad and then also um, have a little bit of time to talk about what um, nonprofit organizations can do that actually is not bad practice other than don't do this stuff. Um, some other things that are actually like really good practices that nonprofits can be doing. So should I just launch into that? Am I just Absolutely. And I'm also dropping some links as we're talking okay, um, uh, okay. on stuff that's related to what you're saying. And I'm also 
monitoring. We, we do actually have a lot of people watching today. And okay. so uh, I'm monitoring if there's any comments that are worth sharing. Um, somebody liked our phrase, the cutting edge of Wyoming progressive politics. Uh, and so, um, you know, I'm glad that we've gotten yeah. some positive feedback. Uh, but yeah, if people have questions or comments, uh, they can drop them on that. Uh, I'm, I'm looking at the Facebook feed. I'm not looking at our stupid underwatched YouTube feed. Uh, I'm looking at the Facebook feed. So, uh, so go ahead and drop questions there or comments if you if you like, and we can share some a little bit later. All right. Awesome. Awesome. And I do want to say like my Facebook community has been like super great and supportive when I've been whining about some of this stuff. Um, so I know that y'all are out there are tuned into a bunch of this stuff. So, um, so the number one thing that I want to say is a terrible practice is not listing a salary and groups will sometimes do this big, like competitive salary with benefits. But it's like, if you're talking about like New York city wages, that's like super different from like, you know, Wyoming wages. And like that phrase doesn't actually mean anything. And what it is setting up is this really awkward dynamic where you're going to have to tell them what you think you should be making. And there have been all of these studies done that indicate that like women and people of color consistently undersell ourselves in that moment. And white men have no problems asking for the fucking moon. And so you end up replicating all of these really bad, like racist and sexist dynamics that are already out there in terms of like wage differentials and also putting somebody in a position where it's like, if I ask for too much, if I'm a woman and a person of color, I'm probably going to get labeled uppity and I'm going to like end up with this, like getting off on sort of a bad foot with my employer because we're often interpreted as being like um, asking for too much and, you know, and not knowing our place and all that kind of stuff. And a lot of this is subtle and, you know, there's definitely, I don't think that there's like, I don't think people are trying to do that in how they respond to people. But when you don't list a salary, you set people up for these really bad dynamics and mm -hmm. um, salary ranges can actually do the same thing. Right. And, you know, and they're better because at least, you know, where the bottom is. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and, um, and at least you have sense of some sense of like, if I were to ask for the top, I'm not, I'm not asking for something that the organizational budget presumably can't handle. And so it's a little bit better. Um, but increasingly best practices are considered just tell me what the fucking salary is like give a number instead of a range. Just and tell me what the fucking salary is. Just tell me what the fucking salary is. Don't make me go through all of these hoops and play all these games and, um, you know, and potentially end up in like a really bad initial, like, here's my first thing that I did on the job was I pissed off my boss. I'm like, yeah, yeah, not cool. I'm uh, thinking also about how that assumes very, makes very ableist assumptions about people's emotional and mental, uh, oh. you know, sort of orientation, right? Um, if you are, if you've had some PTSD in your life or anything uh, like that, um, the way that you are handed that question, and that's the thing, like they, that's, that's just more work that they expect you to do. Right. It's emotional and mental work that they expect you to do to kind of solve their problems for them. Um, and yeah, I think that that's, that you don't have the capacity to do those things in in uniform ways, right? Right, right. Yeah, for sure, for sure. And actually not listing a start date or even a like, we're hoping to have it start on this date um, can also introduce a bunch of like weirdness for people where it's like, so, so I've been in the job search since late October. It's now late January and... I, so I've been in limbo emotionally for that many months and like not listing a start date actually adds more limbo to people and also makes it really difficult. Like, like at what point do you tell if you have a current job? I mean, I'm, I'm fortunate to not have a current job um, in some ways. Um, it's like, at what point do you let your current employer know that you're looking and like what's actually like respectful and an integrity on that end of things and like not having potential start dates listed 
also just creates like there's a delay to when you're able to actually have good communication. If you care about your current employer, like say you're in a field that you really love the work and you really like who you're currently working for and are moving on for whatever reasons, like not like the less information you share in a job listing, the more insecurity you're creating for the people who are applying for that job for you. So, Mm -hmm. um, so don't do that one either. Um, Right. Yeah. Yeah. So many of these things we, you know, people sort of just assume that these are the norm and they're somewhat shocked when people sort of talk about why they're bad, why these practices are bad. It, It tends to surprise people who have just sort of lived with those assumptions. Right. right. Well, and I learned something great. So this is another piece that I want to share that is really new for me and actually um, came out of applying for a job with, and I am going to name this organization because they're fabulous. So there's a group called um, City Bureau in Chicago, and they have on their website um, where their job listings are, they have this great blog post about why cover letters suck. And I had never thought about it. And, um, and basically what, what they say basically is like, when you ask people to write a cover letter and you don't give them any guidance at all, essentially what you're saying is read my mind, figure out out of the ethers, what you think I want to know, instead of just asking people a few simple questions, like here's the questions, don't worry about a cover letter, just answer these three questions, because this is actually what we want to know and actually what we're looking for. And, you know, unless you're literally hiring mind readers, you just shouldn't do this to people. And cover letters are like, this is the only job I've applied for. So I think I've applied for about 30 jobs at this point. And this is the only one that didn't have like um, some version of you need to send us a cover letter. And it's just a mind reading game. And how much cleaner... And more respectful is it to say, actually, these are the four things that we want to know. Give us a paragraph on each one of these. And like, it was hugely relieving to me the first time that I saw that was like, oh my God, you can do that. You cannot ask for cover letters. And I've been on the other end of it and have done a fair bit of HR work with um, the organizations that I've been involved with, like as a board member, or I've been the ED of in the past. And I've always asked for a cover letter. And I'm really getting it being in this process right now, how this is a, it's hugely time consuming. Um, I probably spend two hours per application that I've done um, because you're looking at your resume, trying to like figure out are the things I should emphasize or leave out. I'm writing a cover letter. I'm doing that mind reading game. I'm reading your website. I'm trying to understand who this organization is and what a relief to just have an organization say, can you just answer these four questions? I'm like, oh my fucking God, what a huge relief. And probably a lot of employers are missing candidates that would actually be great at the job, but they're not terrific mind readers. Like they're not able to suss it out. But unless that's part of the job, don't judge people based on that. But that's 100% standard operating procedure in hiring stuff. Write us a cover letter. So that's been fascinating. I'm looking for comments. I know that some people are, are working on some comments. Um, uh, Yuri says that in California and New York, you can no longer ask what people make uh, in a job interview. What do you think of that? I think it's great. I mean, I don't think that you should ask that question because like right now, so so I'm going to be hopefully none of the places that I'm applying for who are going to use this information are listening to this, but I've never made more than $30,000 a year. And if I tell you that, you're going to be like, oh, great, let's pay her 40 for a job that we would gladly pay 80 for. Like, yeah, it's just, it's garbage practice. Don't do it. Thank you, California and New York for actually being ahead of the curve on that one. Or actually right where the curve should be, I guess. So, okay. So, so here's the other thing that's related to this cover letter thing. So I've had these two extremes. One extreme was send us a one to three page application. So one to three pages that includes your cover letter, your resume and your references. Um, So I've got 30 years of job history at this point. And so I literally for this group had to write a short little like cotton candy 
cover letter because you can't say anything in a paragraph, um, figure out how to cram my resume into this tiny little space and include my references. And I did it and it took me two hours to do it um, where, you know, it would have like taken me less effort. You know, there's this Mark Twain quote about like, sorry, this letter is so long, but I didn't have the time to write it shorter, like actually shortening an entire career down to one to three pages is a complete pain in the ass. Don't do that. <laughs> like you don't need to do that in order to be able to quickly sort. Like I've reviewed hundreds of applications on the other end of it. You don't need to make somebody do all of that work to like get it down to that length. And you're probably missing information that could be really interesting if you make people do that. On the other end, I've had a couple that are write us a cover letter, send us your, your resume and your references, um, answer these four questions and send us two relevant writing samples. Uh, so this is like a book. You don't need all of that to be able to do a first cut. And you know, basically what both of these practices are communicating to someone is actually, we're just gonna rub your noses in the fact that we have all of the power and we can make you do whatever you, we want to make you do mm -hmm. in the of this hiring process. Like both of them are terrible. It, it's this competitive framework that is emphasized in this and, and, and that, you know, this is a, you know, this is healthy competition uh, in the labor market. And so we can turn this into a, an essay contest. It's an essay contest to see whether you can feed your family. Right, right, totally. And it's garbage, garbage, garbage. Just please don't do this stuff to people. And the other thing is that, so um, my guess is most people don't spend as much time as I spend on applications because I'm, I'm getting pickier about who I'm applying to and what I'm applying for. But imagine having a full-time job, having a family, being in a job search and being asked to jump through all of these hoops and you have one job almost all of these are just one position, hundreds of people applying for that position. And you're going to make them jump through all of these hoops to do that. And this is like having another full-time job for a lot of people. I mean, it's really, really, really rough. And like the more hoops you make people jump through, um, the harder it's going to be on people who are trying to be responsible to the rest of their life, you know? And those are the people you want, are the people who are trying to be responsible to their lives, right? But you like make them do all of this garbage in order to get, um, you know, to jump through hoops and prove yourself to them. So... Yeah. So you're talking about all this stuff and um, and the easy answer, the sort of easy lefty answer is to say, well, that's why we need a job guarantee, a jobs guarantee. And that's why we need uh, basic, uh, you know, UBI. Uh, mm -hmm. And that's why we need to sever uh, things like health insurance and other um, other goods from uh, having a job so that you all of these things are not at stake. Uh, you know, doing a lot of those things obviously would really empower workers, including workers who are in the labor market. Um, and so doing those things would be great. But it also kind of sounds like you're saying that even absent those things, there are cultural practices that the professional sector, including the nonprofit sector, uses that, that, that should also change, that would be less dehumanizing to people. Yeah, so this is some of it. And and I do think that all of those things would be great. I mean, that is my lefty politics are like, we want a world where people aren't forced into, I, well, actually, so the world that I want is one where we disconnect work from money. And we disconnect exactly people doing what calls them from, I mean, the reason that I'm willing to jump through all these hoops is that there are fucking amazing things happening all over not just this country, I've even applied for some stuff outside of the US, but there's amazing things and projects that I would love to work on. And it's like, basically this dynamic is let me beg you to be able to contribute to your amazing thing and let you struggle to figure out how to pay me to contribute to your amazing thing. God, I would just love to be supporting these organizations. Like if I could be putting in time to support you know, a bunch of these different projects, that would be amazing, but I don't get to do that because capitalism is the gatekeeper for where we put our energy and what we do with our time. And so, you know, probably these groups would love to have the five or six people who are super enthusiastic 
uh, about their work, being able to just contribute to their work and not having to go through mm-hmm. all of the stuff and not having to have just one slot that they've been able to figure out how to pay for. It's like, it's that's like brilliant. That'll set up, you know, that's brilliant. And yeah. it reminds me, if you don't mind, of a story I want to tell about the first time I met a mutual friend of ours, uh, Tawana Petty. Uh, mm-hmm. And uh, I was so I was in Detroit uh, working. I was working for the Public Banking Institute at the time, and we were out in Detroit talking to folks from the Grace Lee Boggs Center uh, about what we what we wanted to do was have you know have a, a public banking discussion, uh, a Detroit wide public banking discussion, and. I learned that day, and I and, and I can't remember whether it was Tawana or whoever it was at the Bog Center. They were talking about the different projects going on in Detroit um, and all of the different things that people were doing, from urban agriculture to organizing to uh, home repair and auto repair to um, various ways of meeting people's basic needs, um, you know, water purification, all of these different projects that people were doing and that these were not jobs in the employment sense, but they were work. And it, that, that there's a difference between jobs and work when you're talking about building alternative communities that are that create their own economies, their own local economies, um, and that's and and that was the day, uh, you know. I was I was that years old uh, when I really realized, when I really first realized the difference between employment in the capitalist sense and work in the community building uh, yeah. sense, uh, not just community organizing, but all sorts of labor that could be put to value in real terms in terms of of what really real people needed in neighborhoods and in cities and everywhere uh and how that's different from the notion of of paid you know wage labor salaried labor and that that contradiction is such an acute contradiction of capital Mm -hmm. yes yes absolutely yeah the idea that you know, there is so much work that needs to be done in the world, um, but there's actually very little employment, you know, the ratio of like real work that needs to be done to employment. And there's a whole bunch of stuff that is like, you know, made up just because it can, it's like somebody's figured out how to make a profit off of it that actually doesn't really have much real value. And so like value, work, labor, pay, all of that has gotten um, sort of all mashed together in a way that has warped the entire concept of contribution and, you know, being a part of your community and being able to give something. And um, yeah, I mean, in my ideal world, like I wouldn't be in any of this and, you know, and the exhaustion of not living in that world is what has driven me to finally be looking for a full-time job and like getting away from, um, you know, having the kind of free time that I have right now to be able to be contributing to other things. And that completely sucks. And we as individuals are pushed into making these choices um, that aren't really choices in some ways. And, you know, and doing and participating in the labor market, even when we know perfectly well that this really isn't the way the world should work, you know, in an ideal world. So it's fascinating being in this with sort of my eyes open and still going, and I want a job, you know? Yeah. Like most of my valuable skills were actually built originally in contexts where I wasn't getting paid for it. So I have my, um, my resume broken into like, there's my work stuff. There's in my case, my intentional community experience. Um, because if I didn't have that on there, there would be multi-year gaps in my resume Um, where I was learning stuff like accounting and farming and a whole bunch of other valuable stuff. Um, And so I think that is fine. Um, I do think not doing cover letters, but asking questions for like, what do you really need to know in order to figure out if somebody's a good match with your job? And then I would stop there. And that would be the first round would be just those questions and somebody's resume. And one of the things that is an increasing practice in at least the professional sector of the nonprofit world is asking people to do um, some real work 
and, you know, some kind of project where it's like, write, you know, write a letter to a foundation, blah, blah, or um, solve this HR problem for us and pay people to do that work. So this is one of the key differences. I've had this a couple times in the organizations that I've been the most excited about working for have both asked me to do some work project. One of them didn't pay for that time. Um, and the other one is offering to pay for that time. And so, you know, give people three to four hours of a budget and ask them to do some real work and pay them the wage that they would be making doing that work for you and pay them decently. Um, so I think something like that with interviews, you know, so first round, I'd say questions and resume, do an interview, then ask somebody to do a work project and pay them to do it. And because that's what you really want to know is what are they, how are they actually going to work, you know, with us? And, um, you know, and then probably another uh, interview, uh, like a final interview with the people whose work you liked the most, or you might get your answer um, and communicate really well every step of the way. Tell people what the timelines are, um, tell them where they're at in the process, um, tell them if you want something more from them. Um, allow them to ask questions in the process. Like don't leave your end of things as a black box for people, but, you know, give people an opportunity. One of the things that I've liked is the interviews where they say at the beginning, so we're going to ask questions for about 45 minutes, and then we're saving 15 minutes at the end for you to be able to ask questions. And that's great because you also learn something about candidates when you hear what kinds of questions they're interested in. But then I also get to start being real with them about like, this is what I'm wondering, like, I don't understand this, or how does this work and that kind of stuff. So I think something like that is probably feels like a healthy, mutually respectful um, process that has, you know, has a job posting originally that has, you know, the salary and all that kind of stuff and what the benefits are and everything. And that's all laid out at the beginning. So I think something like that is like actually a healthy process. Someone else posted, uh, studies show the more info you put in a job description, the more people of color opt out. Um, I also asked if they had a link uh, to that um, because I started to look and I'm not finding that particular stuff, um, but there's a bunch of articles about what does uh, discourage people of color from applying for jobs. So what do you know about that? Um, well, that's fascinating. I, I did not know that piece of information. And um, if I had to venture a guess, it would be that some, some really, really, really long um, job listings uh, make it sound like you have to be everything in order to get the job. And so I don't necessarily think that you should do a three-page long job listing. I think you need to be honest. I've actually had groups lie in their job listings, which like, don't do that. Um, and I think some language that is encouraging that says, here's what we're looking for in an ideal candidate. And we also know that nobody fits all of this. I mean, those are the jobs where mm -hmm. I've been like, good. They're actually being real about it. Um, like, I do think that, you know, both women and people of color tend to assume that we're not as qualified as we are about things. And so I absolutely can see how a super long detailed job listing could put people off. And so I'm not necessarily interested in long, I'm interested in accurate and, you know, having the information up front about what you'll actually be making, um, what the hours are, what does full-time mean to your organization is an increasingly important question because a lot of groups are starting to define full-time as 30 hours. Some groups still define it as 60 hours. I want to honestly know what your expectations are. Um, but I'm, I'll be curious. I'm going to go look at those links um, afterward because that's not, I had not heard that information before and I can absolutely see how that would happen. So mm -hmm. for me, it's not about bulk of information. It's about having like a specific um, set of information that's available in the job description. So, but I'm going to read this because I think that's a really... I'm, I want to understand. What that yeah, hopefully about. the commenter ha will put up some links. Yeah, um, and I was, I was going to add that um, I, so I used to work in, in academia in the university system. And it seems to me also another thing that, that I see if I see a job description that is uh, very detailed is that 
they actually have someone in mind for that job. Um, mm -hmm. And that mm -hmm. there might be someone who is, you know, taking that inside track, if you will, okay. um, for that job. And so they're writing, they're kind of over-specifying a lot of the things with the job description. Uh, mm -hmm. And I feel like that happens in academia sometimes because, um, you know, people know people, but also because sometimes the acting director or the acting person in a position, and that's probably true of, non, of the nonprofit sector too, the acting this or the acting that, uh, the, the one-year temporary person might, be, might have a, an inside track to the job. It all just feels so um, slimy uh, when you think about it in the yeah. context of we are, you know, I am selling my labor power to live. I have yes. to sell my labor power to live and all of these games are happening. All these hoops I have to jump through, all of these inside tracks that people have. Think about the number of times that I don't that people told that adults told you when you're a kid and they're giving you advice on becoming an adult and going out in the job market and what do they tell you? It's not what you know, it's who you know, which is a way of saying you have to have tons of social capital and insider track and insider status. And if you wink at people and if you back scratch, then they'll cheat for you. They right. will fucking cheat for you and they will give you that job. And so it, it's just utterly, it's really dehumanizing, I think. Mm -hmm. And it's really, and it to me illustrates also this idea that Marx and Engels talk about in the Communist Manifesto when they say that all of these, all of the ideals, all the moral ideals, all of the morality of bourgeois uh, ideology just melts away under capitalism. So they have all these values that you're supposed to have about honesty and integrity. And then adults tell you that it's fucking not what you know, it's who you know. Right, right, totally. And there is absolutely a big element of that. And I, I, had, I actually had a really complicated emotional response the other day to, so I was reading a job posting and pretty close to the top of it, they had put a line in there that said, you should be aware that we've identified a, um, a strong candidate from an earlier hiring process. And I was like, appreciate the honesty. Does that mean I shouldn't like what? And, you know, and it was like, and I hate that there are probably a bunch of jobs that I've put the labor in and applied for that that was probably true of, and they weren't upfront about it. And, but then having them come right out and say it was also like, I don't fucking know what to do with that, you know? So, so it is a really interesting thing. And I think that inside track thing is really, um, is really true. And I, and I think that there's also like good ethical practices around posting jobs, even if you are likely to be hiring from within. But the whole thing is like, we're trying to navigate this complicated ethical territory within a system that is fundamentally unethical. And it makes everything feel weird. You know, like honesty feels weird, dishonesty feels weird, but kind of understandable, you know, and it's just like, like, it's just a garbage system, period. And I think there's only a few really strong leverage points that groups have to actually be doing it really well. And I think like honesty is one of them. And um, making it clear that you're actually looking for a real human being and not uh, some kind of robot or something. And like saying things like, we realize not everybody is going to have all of these traits. And, and it would be good to have a chunk of them. You know, something like that, I think is going to be better. But it's. I just uh, have to ask is, is, uh, is Rosa snoring in your room? She is. Rosa is snoring. I have a, I have a very large dog snoring. Sorry. That's hilarious. Sorry, I didn't mean to. Uh, you, were, you were talking about something really important. <laughs> and, and Rose is like, I'm so bored. I'm asleep. <laughs> um, cool. Well, let me see. I'm just going to look at my notes here for a second and say, um, so, so one of the other things, and this was a very niche thing, but I just want to name like I, so one of the groups that I applied for part of the compensation was in-kind compensation. And it came out in the course of the conversations that they don't report that to the IRS. And this was like um, room and board, like a big chunk of the compensation, which I'm like, there are some circumstances in which that's legal to not count that. Um, 
but there's also a whole bunch of circumstances in which that's not legal and putting employees in a position where they have to either join you in committing tax fraud or like tell on you to the IRS is a really shitty position to put people in. So like, I've also had groups that have like talked about positions in the job posting that don't actually exist. And you find that out that this is like, someday we'd like to have these positions and like, just, just like, don't lie to people in the process. And like, I can't believe I even have to say that, but apparently I actually have to say that, that, you know, like, just please be honest with people about what the circumstances are with the job and don't put them in shitty positions um, from a legal standpoint. So, so I want to tell one quick story um, about being on the other end of this that I think folds in with some of this like, you know, racial justice and gender justice stuff. And so I am, um, so I serve on a nonprofit board and um, for a long time, the board was much more of a working board. And I was one of the people that was involved with hiring processes for quite a while. And at one point we had a job posting that was for a very part-time job and didn't even pay very well, but being the world being what it is right now, we got over 300 applications for this job. And I was the first reader for the applications. And so I literally in the course of about a six day period read over, I think it was like 327 applications or something. And when you do that in a short period of time, you have the opportunity to actually start getting some pattern recognition for people, what people do in the job application process. And it became very obvious very quickly that white men, generally speaking, are really fucking lazy about their applications. There were exceptions to that, but for the most part, when you could tell someone's race and gender from their application, it is obvious that women of color work five times as hard on applications as white men do and that, you know, men of color and white women were kind of somewhere in the middle of that. And it was shocking to me to have it be so clear. Like I, I was open to seeing it. And I think that was part of what let me see it. But I think part of why people of color might get discouraged from applying for jobs and women might get discouraged is that I think those of us who are in those categories take the application process much more seriously. We follow the instructions. We double check it six times as we're doing it. We make sure we're sending in everything in the format that it needs to get sent in on. We answer the questions. Um, We include a cover letter if it says include a cover letter. And it was pretty amazing to me to actually see that evidence. And so I am now thoroughly convinced that the racial and gender biases in hiring processes are super real and that we're having a whole bunch of people who are having to work a lot harder. Um, And I literally got done with that. And I'm like, how do white men get jobs? And it's like, oh, right. (laughs) Racial biases and gender biases are how white men get jobs. Um, And so, so I just want to flag that, that like having somebody do the initial read of applications who is who has done some work on racial and gender justice stuff and has learned how to check their own biases is I think one of the most critical things that organizations can do to have better hiring processes is don't let people read the apps initially and tell you who's worth interviewing who have not done any of that work. So that's the first one. Um, The second thing that I want to talk about just really briefly is wage ratios. Um, Two of the organizations that I've applied for jobs with are upfront about having a wage ratio on their staff. And what a wage ratio means is that the the highest paid person in the organization can't be making um, in total compensation, so health benefits, bonuses, the whole bit, can't be making more than X times what the lowest paid person in the organization is making. Organizations that have thought it through and have put actual policies like that in place are ones who are tuned into the fact that there are economic justice issues and they're trying to do something about it um, within the system that they can control, which is their internal system. And this is something that I've seen in worker co-ops, that I've seen in um, nonprofits. And actually yesterday I was facilitating a conversation that include for a nonprofit that included 
a conversation about a wage ratio and actually got a text message from uh, Matt and I got a text message from a friend of ours who had forwarded something from somebody who's in a labor union and is wanting to, they're wanting to build a wage ratio demand into their conversations that they're about to be going into some negotiations with. And it was like this hugely celebratory moment. Like I've got two organizations simultaneously that are excited about doing this and get it that there's something really powerful. And to me, what's most interesting is, you know, basically what you're saying is like, okay, CEO, sure, you can make a million dollars a year, but, you know, say it was like a wage ratio of like even 10 to one, which is still a really big gap, but you need to figure out how to pay your interns and your janitors and your administrative, um, you know, assistants, at least a hundred thousand dollars a year. And then you get to make your million dollars a year. And it's like using kind of a capitalist lever to instill a very socialist value of like, we're all in this together and everybody in this endeavor should be getting the benefits of our labor and our success as a company. And it feels like this, um, this very sort of backdoor, um, we're going to insert this thing into the space and, um, and make a demand that says like, great, we're happy that you're a super successful capitalist. Now bring everybody else up with you. Like that's what our demand is basically. And I love it. And so I want to really encourage organizations, businesses, everybody to really be looking seriously at putting wage ratios in place. For me, it's one of the things that communicates like we've actually thought about this shit and we're trying to do good by people. So that's the last thing I wanted to drop into the space. 